trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I got to tell you, I had the most incredible day yesterday. And this is going to sound like a humble brag or maybe it's going to sound like a flex. I, I can't help it. I just got to tell you, I am I'm very grateful anytime that I have a chance to get out and get some sunshine on my face and some fresh air in my lungs and above all, a, a chance to see some of the incredible beauty that surrounds me. Now, I live in southern Idaho and that means I have a pretty fair amount of of beauty, you know, from which to choose. My friend Kevin came and uh, and took me on a little journey uh, to a little town uh, up in, uh, what would we call it, central, south central Idaho, um, up in the mountains. We had some time to uh, jump in the side-by-side and take a little tour of the mountaintop and uh, go drive across the Camas Prairie, you know, getting there and coming back. And it was just an incredible, beautiful fall day, nice and cool, nice and clear, uh, with good company. So I'm just I'm I'm going to start today's show just by kind of kind of publicly counting a few blessings here and telling you there's a lot of good in the world. So when I when I lay all this uh, this stuff on you, I'm about to lay on you, you know, and you're feeling like curling up and sucking your thumb. <laughs> don't forget that uh, there's there's also a lot of good stuff. Actually, I, I I'm 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 going to share some interesting stuff with you and some things that I hope are are worth your time and your attention. I don't have the answers to all of life's problems. I'm just a simple guy trying to find my way in the world, trying to speak the truth, trying to find the truth as best I can. And I have to ask myself from time to time. So if you've, if you've wondered, why, why do you do this? Or maybe you even want to wonder, why are you like you are, Brian? <laughs> so here's my answer. It's because freedom matters. And I've known this for a long time, but for, for many years, I really couldn't quantify, well, why does it matter? You know, why, why is it important? You know, do you just get a thrill out of being contrarian and swimming against the, the current? And uh, I will admit, there is a certain satisfaction of realizing, hey, I'm not dependent on somebody else to tell me what I need to think or what I should be noticing or what really matters in life. Ultimately, those are things you and I have to decide for ourselves, and it's liberating to make that decision and to say, I'm going to do it, even if it puts me at odds with a lot of society. But the main reason that I do this is because I really believe the most precious gift that God gives his children is that gift of freedom, and I believe it's for everybody. I don't care what, uh, you know, artificial classifications we want to throw in, skin color, religion, you know, ideology. I want everybody to be as free as possible. I want everyone to be free to do anything peaceful. Which is kind of the, you know, that's that's the benchmark of, well, is it real freedom? You know, I like uh, Dan Sanchez earlier this year shared uh, a thought from Leonard Reed's Three Levels of, of Libertarian Leadership. And and, and this, this reached out to me because we're talking about uh, not just sharing the message of freedom, but actually living that message. And the first level is you have to understand the freedom philosophy well enough to personally refrain from advocating or participating in violations of liberty. 
So you set the standard, not just for others, but for yourself as well. And you don't go along with things that are um, uh, that are damaging to liberty. The second level of libertarian leadership is you have to be able to articulate the freedom philosophy well enough to influence those who come within your personal orbit. Now, that could be family, that could be friends, that could be colleagues. It could be people you meet on the plane at a dinner party or whatever. It could include people you're connected to on social media. You know, for, for our purposes, it's you and me. The third level of <clears throat> libertarian leadership is that one must be a beacon of clear understanding and exposition of the, of the freedom philosophy, so much so that others actually seek out your tutelage. They follow your published works. They look for opportunities to learn from you through conversation. And the point that Dan Sanchez makes in sharing these observations from Leonard Reed is that you can't skip any of these levels. If your understanding of liberty is flawed and you endorse violations of liberty, you're not going to be able to accurately explain freedom to other people. If you lack conviction and you don't practice what you preach, your hypocrisy is going to put off potential students because your actions are speaking louder than your words. So I'm not going to pretend and I've got this all down pat and I'm just such a good example. I still fall short from time to time, but I'm making a very concerted effort. And I believe that right now it's more important than ever that uh, those of us who take this kind of thing seriously, those of us who believe this is a gift and it is something that is not only good and desirable, but it is something that we have a duty to protect and to advance, and to to pass on to future generations. If you're one of those people, then you probably realize things are starting to, to get pretty difficult in terms of maintaining the freedom that we've enjoyed for most of our lives and that was you know carried on and handed down by the efforts of others who came before us. So to illustrate this point, I want to share with you a couple of minutes of comments from former New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, Let me try it again. Ardern. Listen to how she talks about free speech as if it is a weapon of war and why censorship is necessary to protect free speech. This is why I do what I do. This week we launched an initiative alongside companies and nonprofits to help improve research and understanding of how a person's online experiences are curated by automated processes. This will also be important in understanding more about mis- and disinformation online, a challenge that we must, as leaders, address. Sadly, I think it's easy to dismiss this problem as one in the margins. I can certainly understand the desire to leave it to someone else. As leaders, we're rightly concerned that even the most light-touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech that we value so highly. But while I cannot tell you today what the answer is to this challenge, I can say with complete certainty that we cannot ignore it. To do so poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. After all, how do you successfully end a war if people are led to believe the reason for its existence is not only legal but noble? How do you tackle climate change if people do not believe it exists? How do you ensure the human rights of others are upheld when they are subjected to hateful and dangerous rhetoric and ideology? The weapons may be different, but the goals of those who perpetuate them is often the same, to cause chaos and reduce the ability of others to defend themselves. 
to disband communities, to collapse the collective strength of countries who work together. But we have an opportunity here to ensure that these particular weapons of war do not become an established part of warfare. In these times, I'm acutely aware of how easy it is to feel disheartened. We are facing many battles on many fronts. But there is cause for optimism, because for every new weapon we face, there is a new tool to overcome it. For every attempt to push the world into chaos is a collective conviction to bring us back to order. We have the means. We just need the collective will. A collective, what was it, to bring us back to order? <laughs> Crud. I mean, if you can't hear the fascism oozing out of that speech, I don't know what else to say. But when she's, these weapons of war she's talking about, it's free speech. This is why we, these are weaponized things. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. Hillary Clinton, by the way, was going on about the same thing uh, just the other day with the, the Clinton economic or whatever their, their forum was. They, they had some kind of a, a confab, you know, with the elite. So I'm not trying to scare anybody. Really, I'm not. But I am definitely trying to put an ex- exclamation point on the idea that things you and I take for granted, the ability, well, I can speak my mind and nobody's going to care. After all, who am I? I'm not anybody important. But you can't just speak your mind. And people who are high profile and who speak their minds tend to find themselves targeted for destruction. Russell Brand is a good example of this. Now, look, I don't know whether or not he is guilty of the nefarious sexual predatory behavior of which he's accused. But I do know this. It has not been adjudicated. It has not been proven in a court of law. And yet you have all these various uh, platforms like YouTube and so forth that are, you know, deplatforming him, demonetizing him, doing the best they can to shut him down. I saw a letter written from an official from the British government to Rumble. Yeah, the video platform Rumble asking them, so uh, why are you allowing him to uh, to use your platform and what are you doing? We want to know, are you trying to, are you uh, demonetizing or are you allowing him to earn money from posting his content there? And there it is right out in the open. Getting the truth out there is not getting easier. Speaking the truth is not becoming easier. When it's considered a weapon by people who want to control you, you got a problem. Now, the answer is, though, to keep speaking the truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I was kind of all over in that, uh, that first segment, but uh, I had a lot on my mind. And I feel better for having shared it. So let's dive in. And by the way, you can check out uh, any of the articles that I mentioned in today's show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I see where the dust is finally beginning to settle over New Mexico's Governor Grisham attempting to enact an emergency gun ban. By the way, she backed down from that pretty quick. Not entirely, but she was she was doing some pretty epic backpedaling. Here's the Here's the challenge, though. All right, we can disagree. Well, she has no right to do that, and, you know, this is wrong. If someone asked you, though, to explain why was this emergency declaration a clear violation of the right of self-defense, would you be able to explain it 
in terms that someone who was either a neutral party or maybe even uh, leaning toward the, uh, but I want to control guns, they scare me, you know, side, would you be able to do so? Well, thanks to Mike Meharry from the, uh, the 10th Amendment Center, here's some terrific intellectual ammunition to uh, sock away for, for when you need it. He says, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lynn Lujan Grisham's emergency order banning the carrying of firearms in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County is a violation of the natural rights of the people and likely a violation of the state constitution as well. And here he goes into a description of the natural right of self-defense. And I love that he starts with, look, this should be obvious, but the Bill of Rights doesn't give you rights. The Second Amendment is not your gun permit. The fact that you exist serves as your gun permit. As John Dickinson, who is the penman of the American Revolution, put it, our liberties do not come from charters, for these are only the declaration of pre-existing rights. You understand that? No matter what someone in government says, your natural rights exist before and in spite of, sometimes, government. Or as Mike Meharry puts it, I can't emphasize this enough, your rights don't come from government. As Supreme Court Justice James Wilson wrote in his 1791 Lectures on Law, the defense of oneself, justly called the primary law of nature, is not, nor can it be, abrogated by any regulation of municipal law. That's pretty strong. Now, he was echoing the words of Mercy Otis Warren in her observations on the new constitutions and on the federal and state conventions back in 1788. Mercy Otis Warren said, Self-defense is a primary law of nature, which no subsequent law of society can abolish. St. George Tucker, the author of the first systematic commentary on the U.S. Constitution, made a very similar observation, or assertion rather. The right of self-defense is the first law of nature. In other words, your right to defend yourself is first among many natural rights that exist, whether government acknowledges it or not. St. George Tucker went on with a poignant warning. In most governments, it has been the study of rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. Government Grisham is, Governor Grisham, rather, is among the many government people to do just that. So from here, Mike Meharry talks about why this was an illegal order. He says Grisham's order not only violates the natural rights of every person living in Bernalillo County, but as Brian McClanahan noted in a recent podcast, it also likely violates the New Mexico State Constitution. The governor banned the carrying of firearms in Albuquerque for 30 days under the auspices of an emergency public health order. In effect, She's using COVID-era powers to ban firearms. And while the New Mexico legislature did give sweeping powers to the governor to make rules during a health emergency, using that power to ban guns clearly stretches the law beyond its intent. Furthermore, the emergency COVID authority granted to the governor arguably violated the separation of powers clause, Article 3, Section 1 of the state constitution. It does not authorize the legislature to transfer legislative powers to the executive branch. More fundamentally, Article 2, Section 6 protects the right to keep and bear arms in New Mexico. It says, No law shall abridge the right of the citizen to keep and bear arms for security and defense, for lawful hunting and recreational use, and for other lawful purposes. But nothing herein shall be held to permit the carrying of concealed weapons. No municipality or county shall regulate in any way an incident of the right to keep and bear arms. End quote. 
So in 2004, the New Mexico Supreme Court held that neither the state that the state constitution rather neither forbids nor grants the right to keep and bear arms in a concealed manner. Grisham could theoretically ban concealed carry, but she cannot ban open carry. By doing so, she clearly violated the New Mexico Constitution. And while there's plenty of ammunition in the New Mexico State Constitution to oppose Grisham's tyrannical order, Mike Meharry says very few people are talking about that. Instead, they're pointing to the Second Amendment and making it a federal case. But contrary to conventional wisdom, he says, making it a Second Amendment issue and relying on federal courts to solve this in favor of liberty is likely to be a Pyrrhic victory at best. In fact, he says it's a dangerous strategy. Trying to make this a Second Amendment issue is a double-edged sword, as it could further limit your right to keep and bear arms rather than enhance it, whether you live in New Mexico or not. He says it's important to understand that the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, was not originally intended to apply to the states. Now, the fact of the matter is that the Bill of Rights was poorly named. It should have been called the Bill of Restrictions. It places specific restrictions on government, a specific government, meaning the federal government. And the preamble of the Bill of Rights makes this clear. Quote, The conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution. End quote. So the word its powers clearly refer to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights was intended to prevent misconstruction or abuse of the powers delegated to the government, meaning the federal government, created by the Constitution. Notice the word government is not plural. The Bill of Rights makes no mention of state governments. In fact, the state ratifying conventions had no intention of restricting their state's own powers. They already had state constitutions with bills of rights to do that job. So the indisputable fact is that the Bill of Rights was not originally intended to apply to state governments. That's not debatable. In fact, Madison's original proposal for amendments that became the Bill of Rights applied to several of the states. But that was rejected. So the only way the Bill of Rights was ever considered to restrict the actions of state governments was due to the incorporation doctrine through the 14th Amendment. Now, you have to understand, the Supreme Court invented this legal doctrine out of thin air some 50 years after the 14th was ratified, and it's dubious based on the original intent of the amendment. Most liberty-minded people love the incorporation doctrine because they think it protects their rights. Mike Meharry says, no, it serves as a Trojan horse, centralizing power in the federal government, and it gives nine politically collected federal lawyers an unprecedented amount of authority to determine the extent of your rights and just how far every government in America can go to violate them. I like that. I like how Paul Rosenberg puts it, too. He says the problem with the 14th Amendment is it gives moral stature to the federal government that maybe it doesn't actually deserve. Well, you can trust that the federal government will get those states to do the right thing. Yes. Yes, we can trust it will always do the right thing. Now, Mike McGarry says, look, or Mike uh, Meharry, rather, sorry, interesting Freudian slip there. I get the appeal, but he says this is only a good idea if you believe that federal judges will consistently side with your individual rights over government power. But they almost always don't. So what's the better strategy? 
Well, he says suing in government courts isn't generally a path to liberty. Resistance and refusing to comply with the order would actually be a much better strategy. In fact, that's exactly what James Iredell, one of the first Supreme Court justices, told us to do. He said the only resource against usurpation is the inherent right of the people to prevent its exercise. And the people will resist if the government usurps powers not delegated to it. That's pretty straightforward. Notice he didn't consider resistance a mere good idea or potential solution to be used later after suing in federal court. He considered it essential, the only resource in response to usurpation. What a great piece from Mike Mike Meharry. I have a link to it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I hope you'll take a look at it and uh, maybe spread this one around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, thanks to my sponsors. If you want to check out who they are, maybe do a little bit of business with them, or at least tell them thanks for sponsoring the program, you can just go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com and uh, take it from there. It's really very, very simple. At least I try to make it so. So, forced charity has kind of become the norm in American society, with the government taking from some to give to others, only under the best of intentions, though, right? I mean, they would only do this because they're very benevolent and they just want to help, and, and okay, yeah. I'm not really buying it either, but got a great article here from uh, Axel Weber, and this is uh, from the Foundation for Economic Education. Axel explains why true charity can only blossom under free market capitalism. He says that socialists and progressives are wrong to assert that capitalism is inherently greedy. I think this is a really timely topic. Axel Weber writes, Progressives and socialists have been able to seize the moral high ground through their use of effective propaganda. He says these sanctimonious uh, ultra, how does he, what does he call ultra crepidarians, ultra crepidarians. Wow. That is a 75 cent word right there. Posture as champions of charity because of their support for economic redistribution and for the welfare state. And of course they condemn capitalism for fostering greed. But Alex Axel rather says, let's set the record straight. Capitalism is the only economic system, that is, if freedom to own and sell property can truly be called a system, where the virtue of charity blossoms. Moreover, charity cannot even exist in the progressive socialist paradigm. True charity can only exist within the context of private property. Now listen to his explanation. He says an essential aspect of charity is self-sacrifice. Charity can take the form of donations and volunteering. In such cases, the giver sacrifices money, goods, or time, all of which could have been used for their own benefit instead. The opposite of what is proposed by socialists and and progressives, you know, is is what is proposed by socialists and progressives. Instead of self-sacrifice, these self-righteous Pecksniffians sacrifice other people's resources and then claim to be charitable for doing so. That would be as if a church were asking for food to help feed the homeless, and I volunteered by na- my neighbor's food by raiding their pantries. He makes a good point here. As Murray Rothbard explained, it's easy to be conspicuously compassionate when others are forced to pay the cost. 
So by forcing taxpayers to help the needy, the socialists and progressives eschew the self-sacrifice that charity requires. If a pickpocket robs Peter to pay Paul, the pickpocket is not being charitable, and neither is Peter, because he had no choice in the matter. The freedom to choose whether to help or not to help is a prerequisite to genuine charity. Charity, rather, Virtuousness and morality require the freedom to do good and bad, Rothbard wrote. If there is no choice but to do good, then there is no morality or virtue. Interestingly, if compulsory giving is charitable, wouldn't uh, progressives and socialists have to admit that the rich who pay the most taxes are the most charitable of all? Furthermore, the coercive nature of socialist and progressive charity destroys the motivation to help others. As Frank Chodorov wrote, we who have no right to own certainly have no right to give, and charity becomes an empty word in a socialistic order. No one need give thought to an unfortunate neighbor because it's the duty of the government, the only property owner, to take care of him. Man, that's a powerful quote, by the way. So next, uh, Axel looks at charity under capitalism, progressivism, and socialism. He says, because of this, government spending tends to displace private spending and investment. Economists call this phenomenon crowding out. The rise of the welfare state, for example, has crowded out private charity. A report by Citigroup states in countries with higher public spending, there is a sense that any debt to society has been repaid through an individual's or a corporation's tax bill. Where there is less public spending, there's a greater sense that something is owed. And he actually has a figure which, which demonstrates this, showing the various countries and the negative correlation between state spending and charitable donations. Now, he says some might argue that the countries with more generous welfare states are sufficiently able to accomplish the task of social welfare. But this argument treats private and public expenditure as equivalents when they are, in fact, not directly comparable. In a 2007 study, James Rolfe Edwards points out that public income redistribution agencies are estimated to absorb about two-thirds of each dollar budgeted to them in overhead costs and in some cases as much as three-quarters of each dollar. In contrast, administrative and other operating costs in private charities absorb, on average, only one-third or less of each dollar donated, leaving the other two-thirds or more to be delivered to recipients. Yet the picture is even worse than that. Using an estimate of the cost imposed by taxation, Edwards finds that almost $5 must be taxed for every $1 of benefits. So, not only are those who are subjected to this ridiculously inefficient tax disincentivized from working, saving, and investing, but the recipients of the aid are also discouraged from being productive. As Edwards poignantly points out, in a careful experiment, James Andrioni estimated that 71 cents of private, private charitable contribution is crowded out for each dollar taxed and budgeted to government aid. Because of this offset, as well as lower earned income due to reduced work time by aid recipients, the resource cost of the administrative bureaucracy and the other costs of compulsory income transfers discussed above, the federal government programs may actually have increased the amount of poverty and generated a dependent class of aid recipients. End quote. Wow. I don't know that you could put it much more plainly than that. So, while these arguments address the progressive welfare state position, what about the socialist one? China's the obvious example for the socialist countries. 
to vividly demonstrate how destructive socialism in China has been for individual virtue, consider how in 2011 a toddler was hit by a van which paused for a moment before slowly running her over. None of the people around helped her as she writhed in agony. As a result, she was run over again, this time by a truck, and for another seven minutes, no one helped the two-year-old. Now, despite this lack of public morality, the Chinese Communist Party has taken over the role of the parent. The CCP displays billboards with messages such as, A civilized society begins with you and me. It runs TV ads telling parents that it's their responsibility to teach their children civilized behavior. Leland M. Lazarus explains, Xi Jinping, Jinping is trying to use the rule of law as the basis for moral principles in China. A frequent TV commercial shows a little girl studying, a young man swimming, and an old couple holding hands. The narrator says in a soothing male voice, I will always be by your side. The young girl looks up at the sky, I will always protect you. The young swimmer looks up, you can always trust in me. At the end, the screen goes black and two characters appear, Fa Lu, the law. Now that's hardly the model for a charitable society. As stressed above, true charity requires freedom of choice. The method of the central planner in both the socialist and progressive vision removes the individual interaction that's central to forming and building the mores of the people. So charity under capitalism is genuine because the giver is sacrificing his own wealth, and here's the key word, voluntarily. The so-called charity, sanctified and sought after by socialists and progressives, is the opposite. Under a facade of charity, they plead for tyranny and control as if it were the most obvious solution, and any who oppose them are irredeemably evil, justifying their power with the excuse that they're helping others. So receiving a check in the mail from some distant bureaucrat you don't know, with money taken from everyone yet delivered indifferently, is nowhere near the same as interacting with the individuals who are helping you. This helps explain why Mina Kai et al. find that the link between individual, individualism, capitalism, and collective well-being is more complicated than critics of capitalism believe. We found that rather than contributing to antisocial behavior, individualism contributes to pro-social behavior and arguably moral improvement. Consider, for instance, my friend Timmy, who recently finished running across the country to raise money for a cause he believes in. Timmy was able to connect his passion and his drive to something good in a way that is only possible in a society where the individual feels responsible for making the world a better place. So, contrary to what the socialists and progressives are saying, capitalism and capitalists are not inherently greedy. As Edwards notes, envy is a powerful human motive that exists as long as there are income differences of any kind among the populace, and would exist even if the average income was so high that virtually no one fell below an absolute defined level of poverty income. So socialism is the gospel of envy. Socialism's close cousin, progressivism, is afflicted by the same vice. Now, in capitalism, there is no inherent vice. The sins that manifest in capitalism cannot be blamed on the system as they're not unique to capitalism, but are rather the product of the flawed nature of humanity. So the point here is the individual himself cannot be made into a charitable saint, but he can improve himself and become more charitable in the freedom that is inherent in capitalism. So says Axel Weber, for the Foundation for Economic Education, I think the good rule of thumb here is, if it isn't being done voluntarily, it's not authentic. 
Think about that one for a minute. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. I've got uh, three articles I want to touch on in this final segment. And uh, the first one, look, I know there are a ton of isms floating around out there. You hear talk about communism, fascism, globalism. Um, If you want a really good baseline to understand what is meant by those terms, I want to commend an article here from uh, J.B. Shirk that explains the difference. And he goes through some of the various terms. What does monarchy mean? What is communism? What is fascism? What is globalism? What's the difference between all of these things? And we hear that term democracy. Well, you know, of course, American democracy, blah, blah, blah. So if you're just looking to clarify your vocabulary, make sure that uh, the words you're saying or the words that you hear others saying actually mean what we think they mean. And, you know, of course, it's always good to ask for clarification. I like to do this, especially with with politicians. When they say a word, you know, if if I'm in a one-on-one interview with one, um, I like to ask them, could you define what that means or define your terms? Sometimes they get angry because vagueness is their friend, right? It gives them wiggle room. I never said that. I merely implied or I, you know, said something that could also be construed in this way. But by getting people to define their terms, you at least have a better chance of of reaching some kind of understanding, even even if it's not agreement. So I recommend uh, this this article from J.B. Shirk. It really outlines the difference between these schools of thought. And I, I like G. Ed Griffin's take. I think he probably simplified this as well as it could be. At the root of all these differences... Really, the the dividing line that we need to be able to perceive is not so much Republican versus Democrat. It's not so much conservative versus progressive. It's the individual versus the collective. And you will find people who have a collectivist mindset very much on the right side of of the aisle, just as you'll find them on the left side of the aisle. Sometimes it's called statism. I prefer the term collectivism just because one philosophy acknowledges that you as the individual have rights that are absolutely sacrosanct. They may not be infringed upon. They may not be abridged. You can't be punished for being out of step. As long as your behavior is peaceful, you are, you know, you're good. Collectivists don't think that way. They operate more on a Borg mentality. You will be assimilated, assimilated rather. Resistance is futile. I don't know about you, but I get pretty tired of all the attempts to assimilate me just makes me want to push back harder. All right, the next article. This was a really fun one. I picked this one up off intellectualtakeout.org. And it's on mistakes, the importance of making mistakes. This is from Francisco Zuniga. And I don't know about you, but uh, I have known people who were extremely mistake-averse. Now, look, I don't like to be wrong either, but I mean... To the point where, this is really sad, but I remember a kid in high school, he was a couple of years younger than me, um, who got a B on his report card and attempted suicide. I mean, do you get what I'm saying? There comes a point where 
you know, hey, to make mistakes, that's you're only human, right? Billy Joel would agree with me on this, but um, this kid had such high expectations and such an aversion to mistakes that he literally was was ready to kill himself for getting a bad grade. What he considered a bad grade, frankly, man, a B. Holy cow! I'd have been like, yes, I not only passed, but I did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, I was I was not a great student. You you probably figured that out already. Nonetheless. This article talks about uh, Rene Descartes, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating little uh, excursion into Cartesian dualism. This is a theory that talks about how the human mind and body are made of two separate substances, mind and matter. So man's nature is divided into <laughs> excuse me, two separate but unequal parts. The mind is the dominant substance, and according to Descartes, of the two substances, the mind is the one that exists beyond any doubt, but its reality is proven by the very act of thinking. And the existence of matter, including our bodies, is proven indirectly through the senses via the mind. It's, it's an interesting mental exercise, but it's also a fantastic article. And if you've ever wondered, you know, well, is there value to making mistakes? The answer is unequivocally yes. Mistakes are your friend. And they'll teach you things that, uh, you know, an unending arc of success never can teach you. By the way, that's a hard lesson to learn. And it took me way too long to figure that one out, too. Just because you made a mistake or because you've had an epic failure at some point, that doesn't define you. You failed at something. You did not fail yourself. You're not a failure. You simply, you know, may have failed at this particular task. Pick yourself up. Keep moving forward. Every person you see who is a high achiever, every person who's overcome, you know, incredible odds, that's the process they went through. And more often than not, the more they failed, the greater they became. Anyway, some fun food for thought there. Now, last article. This is the article of the day, by the way. I thought this was an interesting one just because uh, I know sometimes people are skeptical when you say, well, you know, government's getting out of control. It's just way too intrusive and it's way too tyrannical and it's getting way too involved in my life. And sometimes people will push, well, what exactly does that mean? Give me an example. You know, as if you prove it to me, prove it. So if someone asks you for specific ways government is getting too intrusive, here is an article with 20 common functions of American life that our government currently wants to restrict, regulate, or outright ban. This is from uh, leohoman.com, who points out the U.S. government was never meant to be an all-inclusive entity involved in every aspect of our lives the way it is today. How did we get to this point? And in what areas of our lives need to be taken back from the illegitimate claims of government in order for us to say we truly live in a free country? First of all, he links to a video provided by Hillsdale College comparing the founder's vision of government under a constitutional republic and the modern version of government under a democracy as defined for us by our oligarchical overlords. It's a, it's a world of difference, but in no particular order, here are 20 things that come to mind that are in various stages of being regulated, restricted, or even outright banned that government has no business being involved in. Okay, wood stoves, strictly regulated, some models already banned. Gas stoves, the federal government has been openly saying it wants to ban them. 
Oh, by the way, it also, oh, we didn't say that, but then they turned around and they did. Gas generators, federal government wants to ban them. Gas cars and independent vehicle travel, taxed, phased out, banned and replaced by 2035 with autonomous electric vehicles with a remote kill switch. Eric Peters and I talk a lot about this when we have our weekly chat. Air travel, taxed, regulated, soon to be restricted, and rationed. Gas lawn equipment, government wants to ban. Supplements, regulated, government plans to ban. Over-the-counter cold meds, come on, we were just talking about this last week, banned. Berkey carbon filters for clean drinking water, but did you know the EPA is trying to ban these? Okay, something to keep in mind. Physical cash and coinage, the government wants to ban, started phasing out during COVID, will gradually be replaced by digital programmable money with an on-off switch. Now, this transition is already happening in some countries. It will launch soon in America. Physical ID cards, plastic or paper being replaced by digital and biometrics such as facial ID, palm scans or eyeball scans. These are things they're trying to get rid of. Borders and boundaries between nations already banned by most Western nations, except when convenient to harass and persecute law-abiding citizens. National citizenship and national sovereignty. The plan is to have global citizens under global governance. Okay, this one is not even ironic. Genders, it's all fluid, right? Rainwater capture, already regulated in at least 13 states, including California, Oregon, Nevada, Wisconsin, Colorado, Illinois, Georgia, Ohio, Washington, Rhode Island, Utah, and Virginia. If it falls from the sky, we own it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Private well water, already regulated in some states. California plans to meterize private wells and sell your own water back to you, the homeowner. Oh, my word. Removal of water from creeks or streams, regulated, restricted, or they plan to ban that. Backyard gardening, registration is encouraged for future regulation. Firearms, really? Ultra-regulated and restricted plan is to ban them outright. And finally, the ability to procreate and reproduce, already severely discouraged. The plan is to ban and replace with artificial insemination, designer babies grown in labs with DNA features for sale, under government registration, regulation, taxes, fees, etc. Now you'll see that all those things to one extent or another are under attack by governments in partnership with big, powerful corporations. And all 20 of those items listed, incidentally, are items that allow us to live our lives independent of the government. Someone is trying to make sure you depend on them for everything. Every breath you take, so to speak. This is The Brian Hyde Show.